Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzee. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you joining me today. And in this podcast, we're kind of sticking along the same theme as we did last week. So if you missed my episode last week with uh, Daniel Hind, go ahead and check that out. We talked all about the mindset needed to kind of shift yourself from that, I have to go on a diet and make my New Year's resolutions to having a healthy lifestyle and making a complete change versus just a couple of weeks of a diet just to reach maybe a superficial New Year's resolution. So in this episode, I'm kind of continuing along with the diet side, but really looking at it from a genetic and from a medical standpoint. So in this episode, I am joined by Dr. Sherrod Paul. He is a skin cancer surgeon, family physician, academic, skincare expert, evolutionary biologist, storyteller, and and social entrepreneur as well as an adjunct professor at Auckland University of Technology. Born in England with a childhood in India, he is a global citizen who lives down under. In 2008, was featured in international editions of Time, and in 2015, was awarded the prestigious Kowetia International Excellence Award for Leading Health Improvement on a Global Scale. Dr. Paul is an award-winning author, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and medical textbooks, a prolific contributor to major national and international magazines and journals, including Mind Body Green, and a frequent radio and television guest. And he also has an amazing TED talk, a TEDx talk from TEDx Auckland called The Myth of Race. Um, it is in the show notes for this episode. So either before or after you listen to this episode, I really, really encourage you to watch his TED Talk. It's really, really cool. Um, so what do we talk about in this episode? Well, First of all, Dr. Paul believes that today primarily that the healthcare system today is primarily focused on reactively treating illness. We can all agree with that with very little resources going to the proactive treatment. So one thing that he said that I really stuck with me is medicine is not health. Medicine is an industry. It doesn't automatically mean good health. And that is so true. So we talk about what we can do proactively to help with our overall health. We talk about the genetics of health, making medicine more personal. The most important questions to ask your physician at a yearly checkup, and we can say this to PTs as well. How historical human migration and diet patterns influence your vitamin D levels and omega-6 to 3 ratios. This stuff is so cool. And should the medical system be proactive or reactive? And I think we all know the answer to that. Um, I'll give you a little hint. By the end of this interview, I told Dr. Paul that um, right when we were done, I was going to go out and buy a bag of oranges and a lot of salmon. So that kind of gives you a little hint as to probably what we need in our health uh, to keep us healthy and keep us active and keep us strong. So a big, big thanks to Dr. Paul. This episode is truly, truly interesting. So um, I hope you all enjoy. Hey, Dr. Paul, welcome to the podcast. I am thrilled to have you on. Yeah, good afternoon, and thank you for having me. We've got a lot to talk about today, so let's get right to it. You have said in in the past that medicine is not health. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, you know, medicine um, is reactive, um, like we were just discussing. And what I said is because when I studied law after medicine, what I found is law doesn't translate into justice. And just like that, medicine isn't health because medicine is an industry and it's very useful when you need it, be it, you know, medications or, or surgery. But it doesn't automatically mean good health for that. You need to be proactive. You need to know your body. You need to know what questions to ask physicians because, you know, I think as a, an MD, I find people don't ask me enough questions. You know, people just, you know, I often think I'm humbled by the fact that literally you can tell people anything and they believe me. But I really wish that people actually asked more questions, knew their bodies, took more interest. And in your opinion, what are some top questions that people should ask? So for the listeners of this podcast, they're going to see their doctor next week. What are some important questions that they should be asking their physician? I think combination of if you're going into procedural medicine, for example, so if somebody's having a procedure, then uh, people need to know, you know, A, are there alternatives and or is everybody does the same kind of procedure um, that you're doing? And then, of course, you know, people are often sometimes embarrassed or overwhelmed or overawed to ask about how many procedures have you done or, you know, what are the exact number of worst problems you've had with it or things like that. And I really think you know, people don't ask those kind of questions enough. So similarly, I think you can extrapolate that for medications as well. You can say, you know, you know, alternatives, can I manage with something else? Does it interact? These are the things I'm doing in my lifestyle. Because often doctors um, also don't worry too much about what is in the patient's lifestyle. So, you know, it's like we know a lot of our medications, for example, blood pressure medications interfere with grapefruit and things like that. But we need to actually tell people that or it may be in the fine print and the packet, but, you know, we should be educating them better. I totally agree that our medical system, certainly here in the United States, is certainly more reactive than proactive. We're really much better at treating people when they've already been sick or they've already have some sort of chronic illness that maybe could have been avoided with being a little proactive. So can you talk a little bit more about things that you do and you recommend for people to be, for medicine in general, to be a little more proactive than reactive? Yeah, I think it's really trying to um, get to know the person rather than the illness. And I think sometimes all of us in um, medicine, be it in whatever field, including, you know, physical therapy, whatever, sometimes we just treat the illness and we're not really looking at what are they all about? Talk, I have a lot of older patients that deal with skin cancer. And sometimes you say to them, you know, what is important for you at home? And, you know, for somebody, the most important thing may be sitting in front of TV and watching the football. And really, if he's able to do that, then his quality of life is really good. As opposed to somebody for him walking is very important. Then you decide, should I use a skin graft here or I do a, a go a little more conservative? So, so I think in some ways we as um, physicians, it's important for us to understand that there's a human being at the other end of it. And I guess from a patient or client perspective, um, it's important for them to tell them, you know, um, their concerns and needs and, you know, be um, upfront about it. And I think often people don't ask, like I said, enough. So my book, The Genetics of Health, is about knowing your genes and, you know, taking preventative action. 
So, so one example I'd give you is the one with the vitamin C gene. It's a very interesting gene for a number of reasons. And the first thing is it's an evolutionary aspect of the use it or lose it. So if you take humans and primates like gorillas and bats, for example, we tend to uh, eat citrus fruit. So we stop producing the vitamin. Whereas if you look at creatures like, you know, New Zealand's got more sheep than humans and sheep, for example, produce uh, their own um, vitamin C because they don't eat citrus fruit. Or the same can be with newts and things which regenerate their limbs and things like that. So what we find is, so for a start, we don't produce our own vitamin C, so we need it in the diet. But one in five of us, that is 20% of the population, irrespective of where in the world, lacks a gene or has a non-functioning variant of the GSTD1 gene, which helps us absorb vitamin C. So for these people, if you don't supplement or double your dose of vitamin C per year, what was very interesting, from your 20s onwards, your waist circumference goes up by a teeny bit that you wouldn't notice it and your blood pressure and your renal function deteriorates. So by the time you're 40 to 50, you've either got prediabetes or kidney disease or heart disease or you're just overweight. So typically what I found is, you know, when I've been doing this gene test, which um, is the back of my book, is people... Typically, they then send me their photos and you can almost be intuitive and you can see them in their 20s or at college and they're trim and skinny. And then you look at them in their 40s and 50s and they're really blown out. And not all of them, but for some of them is just bad lifestyle. But for some of them, it's actually genetic. And, you know, if you were proactive, all it would cost you is eating an extra orange a day and you would have saved a lot of healthcare costs later on. Well, I know what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. I'm going to go out and buy a whole bag of oranges. Just to be on the safe side. <laughs> Just to be on the Absolutely. safe side. I will eat an Absolutely. orange a day if, and if that's, that's going to help my and waist keep, circumference It would keep the down. doctor away. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> if that's all it takes. So now, you had mentioned this sort of genetic testing. And when a lot of people think of genetic testing, I know I, for one, I think of 23andMe or the Ancestry.com. So is this the kind of genetic testing that you're doing to find out about these different genes that can influence our health. Yeah, I think the fundamental difference is the three types of gene testing. The ones you commonly hear about is what we call whole genome sequencing or WGS. And that's really about just testing your whole genome. And that's what companies like 23andMe do and some others. But what they do is there's a lot of stuff which we don't know about. But also the other issues, we also test for illness in it. And of course, that for things you can't cure or if you're going to get Alzheimer's or something, it's going to freak you out. And I think stress is such a big part of our lives already that I think that has negative health implications. Then the second type is um, the 16 hours. That's the RNA kind of testing of microbiota. That's really for um, diets, just checking specifically for things like gluten and things like that. Um, what we do is we do test for that, but generally we just focus on diet and exercise. So, so for example, some people are more suited to power training. Some people are more endurance and you can pick that. We can pick people who are more likely to have Achilles tendon injuries. So they need to be strapping and orthotic footwear and that kind of stuff. Um, diet, I mentioned vitamin C earlier. We test for vitamin A, D, folic acid. We test for... There's 21 genes of Delaf, so I want to call it the, uh, you know, it's called the Revolution 21 GT, and it's basically we've identified 21 genes. Protein is another one. See, for example, um, there's some people who have a particular protein gene, uh, FTO, um, which is basically these are the people who, if they go on a 
high protein diet, they'd lose weight dramatically. I mean, you'd often see people said Atkins worked for me or whatever, but it doesn't work for everybody because you need to have the gene type. So, so because based on this, we can actually tell you, even if if weight loss w- was a goal, then we could actually look at what would be a better diet for you. Or sometimes we just pick up that you're you know lactose intolerant and um, or you know uh, gluten intolerant or something. But generally, it's about opt. It's all about performance. Ultimately, what it means is that if you're intolerant, you avoid them, and if you you end up with more energy. And what it means is that overall, it's about optimizing performance. So when I was in the UK for the same book, I was approached by the development squads of several of the youth soccer teams. When they take youth squads, they find that, you know, what if we optimize their diet and exercise when they're young, because then they're more likely to follow it. So so I think it could be for executive performance, you know, it's for people like yourself who coach people before. So it's really all about, you know, optimizing, um, you know, we should really be testing you and coming back and talking about it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. And so now you had mentioned when you're testing, you're testing about 21 different genes. Yes. Yeah. So what I do is we do, we don't do whole genome sequencing, but we do what we call SNP or single nucleotide polymorphism. What it means is we, we know the gene which has evidence uh, in the literature already. So we pick the evidence-based genes. So like this vitamin C one I mentioned, which we know, and we just specifically just test them. Have you got it? Yes, no. So caffeine is another one. So 50% of the population have, you see, because these things are confusing to the public. If you read a newspaper, one day it will say coffee is very good for you. One day it will say coffee is terrible. So you think, is it good or bad? Same with alcohol, same with various things. But the truth be told, um, caffeine is interesting because 50% of the population are fast metabolizers and 50% are slow. So if you were a fast metabolizer, then actually it's actually pretty good for you, you know, because it can actually help. Um, and we do use caffeine as a drug, you know, in asthma and uh, in pain relief. But if you are a slow metabolizer, then having more, and, more than 200 milligrams a day can actually increase your risk of heart disease, increase your risk of kidney disease. So, so we can actually give you advice more meaningfully. Interesting. Yeah. And I have to say, I am not a caffeine drinker at all. It just does not agree with me. So maybe I don't have that fast metabolizing gene. I mean, I can't have any of it. It just makes me crazy. Yeah, but you see, that's interesting because it's not as intuitive because I thought that in the sense that if I have coffee after midday, then I get that buzz that I can't sleep all night. So I thought I would be one of these people with these uh, slow metabolism. But actually, that craziness or the ability, inability to fall asleep is related to the binding to adenosine receptor in the brain, which adenosine competes with dopamine. So so basically what it is, is that if you have tighter binding of adenosine, then you are one of these people who gets hyper on coffee. So it's actually not necessarily a metabolic thing as I was intuitive. So it wasn't in my case. I thought surely I'd be it, but I wasn't. So so it may not be true for you. Yes. Learning so much already. Okay, so you had mentioned a couple of other things that you test that I'd love to talk to, one of which is the vitamin D issue. And you speak about this in your TEDx talk that was in Auckland. I know I'm a, I was just put on vitamin D. And then when I had said something to a friend of mine that, oh, I have to go on 5,000, I use a vitamin D, they said, oh, everybody's on vitamin D. So can you explain a little bit about what, what that means? Why do we need it? Vitamin D is very important because it's a calcium regulator. 
And one way of looking at it is we know that all life forms mostly evolved in, in underwater. And that's why when we're looking, see, if we're sending probes to Mars and things like that, the first thing we're looking at is their water there, because without water, there isn't any life. So, but what we know is that seawater has 20 times the calcium as um, um, fresh water. So what we know is that all these creatures, when I researched them underwater, they weren't exposed to sun, but they had um, calcium regulators, which was a vitamin D. So they had vitamin D receptors. So, so the important thing is that vitamin D is perhaps like a miracle vitamin because it's really very essential for fundamental life at a cellular level. But what's happened is our lifestyle has changed so much from 100,000 years when humans were just walking around without many clothes to now when we're all covered up and we've migrated to different parts of the world. And our diets are so different. And we're not really eating enough vitamin D rich foods. So, so for example, and that's actually what led to, and that was my TEDx talk was really about the myth of race. So all our skin colors came about because of our diets and uh, migration and our vitamin D levels. So to give you an example, people in Africa, because they were the original people out of Africa, they have very high pre-vitamin D levels because the skin in Africa darkened very gradually over time because all our skin colors were a battle between vitamin D and folic acid. So if you bear with me, it's a slightly lengthy explanation, but this is a fundamental thing to understanding it is basically if you are dark skinned, um, generally you don't absorb vitamin D properly. But in Africa, the skin darkened over a long period of time. So therefore they have high pre-vitamin D levels, so which makes them naturally good athletes. But in Asia, because people migrated over Indus Valley, and that happened over a shorter period of time, only about 4,000 years. So virtually everybody in Asia is vitamin D deficient, but also they don't absorb it well because they're brown skin. So what it actually means is that so um, people there, and if you're eating calcium, like in India, for example, people drink milk and they eat yogurt virtually every meal. And what it means is you have a very high rate of heart disease and diabetes coming. It's a big epidemic, largely because they are not correcting the vitamin D levels. And the other problem in the subcontinent is large vegetarian population. So, so as we know, salmon and cod have very, very high vitamin D levels. So if you are not a vegetarian, then see other fish have omega-3, but they don't have vitamin D as much as salmon and cod. So that's why, actually, if you look at an little aside, if you look at the Inuit people, the Eskimos, and you look at the polar bears, their skin is dark. I mean, you shaved a polar bear, which is white bleached fur, it's actually got black skin because their diets were so rich in calcium that they didn't need to lighten their skin. And that's how European skin became lighter because people migrate out of Africa, you needed to absorb vitamin D so your skin lightened. So. We were speaking before we went live here and salmon and cod have yes. like an enormous amount of, of vitamin Absolutely. D. What, what is that amount exactly? Yeah, generally, um, what's been shown and uh, where people have studied actually salmon oil and cod oil is about 1,200 international units per teaspoon. So that's quite high. I mean, it's almost like a tablet you take, for, which is commercially synthesized. So I guess, you know, uh, there are many other things. So people generally think fish, but lots of other fish only have omega-3, which is different. It does have a bearing on your vitamin D metabolism. It makes your absorption better, but it's not the same. And what, why is vitamin D important? So we're all vitamin D deficient. Yeah. Why so, is it important for our health? Yeah. So, so to give you an example, vitamin D is important um, 
because if you had low vitamin D levels and you were consuming calcium, then the um, calcium goes straight to your cells, what we call intracellular calcium. And that's what lines your plaques in your arteries. So it leads to both heart disease and diabetes. Because fundamentally, vitamin D is your calcium regulator. And we know that calcium is a big part of your plaques in your arteries. And we know that arterial disease is one of our biggest killers, be it be, um, from di in people with diabetes or otherwise, because we also eat a lot of fat. So the point is, if you're eating more saturated fat, obesity is a big problem in populations. So as you get eating more saturated fat and trans fats, you're producing more plaque. On its own, that may not be that dangerous because when they first studied, and that's why it's quite interesting to understand this about fats because flat fats on their own may align it, but without the calcium and other things mixed with it, they're not hard enough to cause any problems. But if you have this lack of vitamin D and this increased calcium, you're more likely to, that's more likely to lead to heart disease. Is that correct? But that's you're not right. necessarily overweight. You know, a lot of people think, well, if a person's overweight, then they must have like, you know, sludge running through their veins or they're eating all this high fat, yucky foods. But it could be more of a vitamin D versus Absolutely. calcium issue. Uh -huh. Absolutely. And you can also be, like I said earlier, you can also be obese for other genetic reasons like uh, a vitamin C deficient gene can make you overweight. So there can also be other reasons for you to put on weight. But you're right, you know, you, it is also possible uh, in certain people to be fat and happy. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you could also be fat and be eating the right fats, just consuming more calories. So your heart and everything may be healthy, but you are just big. But right. generally, we, we don't have many of those people because overall, mainly because there is no processed fat which is good for you, right? So unfortunately, what's happening is the more naturally you eat, you're fine. But what's happening nowadays is, and, and I guess this must bring us to the one thing which is very important even for um, physical health is our omega-3 to omega-6 ratios. So when we're sp speaking about um, fats now, I was thinking about, I hear all the time about paleo diets. And one of the mm -hmm. things I always say is a paleo diet is a paleo fantasy, right? And, and largely because, yes, it is true that if you're eating meats which are non-processed, you're eating like a caveman. But the thing we don't realize is cavemen had, there was a weed called purslane, which was pigweed, which was 70% of the earth had it. And it's not even found anywhere. I don't know, we've just screwed up our environment or something that it doesn't grow much even as a weed. But that weed was so rich in omega-3 that when they studied fossils, cavemen or paleo men had an omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, one is to one. But today's diets, um, we have an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of up to 16 to one. Okay, what does that mean? Right. So what it means is we are eating 16 times omega-6 oils versus omega-3 oils, or at least 10 times ancient man had an omega-3 and omega-6 oils virtually the same quantity. Okay. So what it meant is most of their meats were marine-based because their omega-3 comes from other fish and seafood and other things like walnuts and flaxseed and all that kind of stuff. But what's interesting is if you look at what we know from um, illness, we know that having a lower omega-3 to omega-6 ratio or omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, we know that under three is to one, there are papers which show that your risk of rheumatoid arthritis is lowered. Under five is to one, there's papers which show that breast cancer risk is lowered. Under 10 is to one, even things like 
osteoarthritis and other arthritis things and heart disease is lower. So in other words, one of the other problems in society we have now is we are not consuming enough omega-3 because most of the fats we get from other meats and most of the times when we think we're healthy and we're consuming more sunflower oil, all those, they're all omega-6. Olive oil may be good for you, but fundamentally, see, what we don't realize is no oil is fundamentally good for you. It's better in its natural form. So if you think olive oil is good for you, that means eating olives is good for you, right? But right. fundamentally, drinking too much oil is not a natural thing for us because we didn't evolve to consume oil in an oil form. It, because technically, it is a bit processed. You have to sure. process it or press it to make it. Sure. So the same thing with... Uh, what's happening in our lives now is processed meat. So they all have some degree of omega-6 oils, but they all have very little. Even the meats which they try and make them healthier, unless you're eating a lot of fish and unless you're eating a lot of walnuts and flaxseed and things. So we need to try and increase our omega-3. And is, um, are omega-6 oils bad for you then? They're not bad, but the ratio of them with to your omega-3 is important because omega-3 is particularly good for your arteries. It has a protective effect. So we know that people have high omega-3 levels, their protective effect on the arteries, they get less, less strokes, less heart disease. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I'm saying is you can be fat and healthy provided you're eating a lot of omega-3, right? Our omega-3 levels were high because then it has some protective effect on your artery, but it's very difficult to do that if you are not eating enough omega-3. Got it. And so when when you're talking this kind of 16 to 1 ratio yeah. of 6 to 3, obviously not good. So the lower That's the right. ratio, the better Absolutely. it is. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So how do we find out what our ratio is? Technically speaking, you could actually measure these things, but you actually don't need to. What you really need to do is what we know, like I said, from previous studies on ancient diets. So when people are talking paleo diets, is paleo people had mostly omega-3. So I think what it means is that, see, the problem we have today is if people are healthy, health conscious, then because, yes, we know that, you know, farming and things like that are not good for the environment and as well as, you know, killing animals and all this sort of stuff, what happens is typically then people became become vegetarians. But the problem with vegetarian is unless you're consuming enough walnuts and flaxseed and various things, you're getting very little omega-3 and you're virtually getting no vitamin D. So so if you were a vegetarian, while it may be healthy for the environment, we didn't evolve to be totally vegetarians. So what it means is then you will have to supplement vitamin D, but because vegetarians wouldn't want to take the fish oil forms, like salmon oil or cod liver oil. So what will happen is then you will have to take a pill like what you're doing at the moment, which is basically a synthesized form of um, vitamin D. It's a chemical form. This omega-6 to omega-3, for us to know what that ratio is... You just have to look at your diet and what you're eating. It's just in your diet. I mean, if you just look at... The the best way I tell people is I tell them, give me a two-week sample of everything you ate, even if you think it's not important. And then you look at, because a lot of our cereals, for example, will be muesli or something. It will Mm -hmm. be made with safflower oil or something. Mm -hmm. So you know it's more omega-6. So you can basically just look up and all of them will have. So you can basically, so a lot of stuff which we think is fundamentally healthy are actually healthy in moderation. And 
So, like I said, olive oils, all these oils, sunflower oil, they're all not bad for you, but no oil is fundamentally good. So you're better off actually eating it in natural form because that way you won't get too much of it. So if you're really just eating fish and you're really just eating olives, it's very unlikely you'll absorb enough oil that you're actually going to have a ratio out of kilter. But what's happening is because we're eating so many bad fats, everyone's telling us these fats are bad for us, that we're trying to supplement them with a lot of fats, which means we're actually having more fats than we need. Got it. Got it. All mm. right. That makes a lot of yeah. sense. So it really comes down to being very cognizant about what you're eating. And I like the That's idea it. of writing down everything you're eating yeah. for the, those two weeks. And you can see how much omega-6s am I consuming versus omega-3s. And I'm sure it's... Absolutely. And, and the other thing that I, what I tell uh, patients to do is not only write down what they're eating, but two other columns. One other column is for energy levels and another column is for mood. Mm. Right. So because you can pick things like if you don't want to do a gene test, um, then we can actually tell typically if you're lactose intolerant or gluten or something because people will say went out and had pizza and then, you know, they felt terrible or they felt lethargic the next day. And so, you know, the more, uh, you know, the chewy, the bread, of course, the more gluten it has. And so it may well be that there is a link and it's better for them. And then if you look at the pattern, so typically, as you'd know, you know, skin and brain access is very important because I'm a skin doctor. Largely, um, if there's something going, if you're stressed or something out of kilter with your food, it tends to affect your skin. Mm-hmm. So when people come with chronic skin conditions, this is very typically in eczema or various things. I often tell them, this is one thing I often do is a two-week sample of your diet. But I also say, rate your skin from 1 to 10, rate your energy from 1 to 10, rate your mood from 1 to 10. And I tell you, 90% of the cases, and this is what we were going back to um, saying, you know, um, being proactive. Typically, before they come back to see me, they've diagnosed themselves because they've been writing it for two weeks and they can actually see the pattern and they'll come back and say before even organizing an allergy test they'll say well it's peanuts or it's something the pizza so it's gluten or something because they can pretty much see mm-hmm. yeah and you know it seems like all of this makes so much sense and being proactive but it takes work so do you think that's why the medical system maybe is a little more reactive than proactive because being proactive takes a lot of work it takes work on behalf of the person it takes work on behalf of the physician or or even you know in the world of physical therapy we're trying to be more proactive promoting health and wellness versus seeing people when they've already gotten to that state where they have these chronic illnesses like diabetes, COPD, things like that. So what can we do as a collective healthcare system to, what are practical steps to be more proactive, I guess? I think the first thing is to really encourage a sense of personal responsibility. And I think in society, we're more and more um, lacking it like broadly speaking we want things done for us mm-hmm. so even even as parenting you know even parents we're lacking um sometimes um responsibility being responsible so as i think what's important is if you take personal responsibility everything in medicine or everything in um to do with health is a mixture of our environment and our genes right so as you would know if in skin, if you dealt with, then you have a risk of skin cancer based on your uh, genealogy, but you would also have a risk of skin cancer if you got sunburned or used suntan beds. 
Likewise, if you are a smoker, you would increase your risk of lung cancer because that's your environment. But also you may have a genetic predisposition because sometimes you will say he never smoked, but he got lung cancer. So literally everything is about diet and environment. So sometimes, uh, but when we talk about environment, what we forget is there is an external environment and that's what we sometimes don't have control over because where we live. But our internal environment is our diets and that's we have control over. So I'll tell you, there was an interesting study done, which I allude to in the Genetics of Health book, where they looked at, uh, quote unquote, as they find it funny, it was called the American cafeteria diet, but basically it was junk food and coke, right? It was a burger and coke. And what they did is in people, they actually put mice on it and what they looked at the genes they were expressing. And what was interesting is within weeks, they were expressing not only more anxiety, depression, um, laziness, obesity, all these genes were coming out. So in other words, sometimes what you eat may also make you more angry and stressed and things. So the more processed. So so really what I'm thinking is that's really our internal environment. So if you're creating that environment for ourselves, how do we expect ourselves to be happy? So if you're eating all this processed stuff, which is fundamentally making you unhappy, then you're really going to need another chemical somewhere else to contract it, and that effectively becomes a health system. So, so I think to a large degree, we over-medicalize things. So I think a lot of things like this are over-medicalized because we're creating a bad environment, there's some bad outcomes, but we automatically think, well, this is an illness which needs treatment. It isn't. You need to take some personal responsibility. Look at what are you putting inside your body. You know, give me another, I'll give you another example with, um, you know, soda pop, fizzy drinks. So if you like at Coke or Red Bull or um, Mountain Dew or whatever. So I, I found it very interesting when I was studying the sugar conundrum because when I was studying caffeine for a start, say an espresso single shot is 80 milligrams of caffeine. A Coke has 35 milligrams, right? And, and Red Bull is even higher. Now, what was interesting is um, I was thinking, why do they need to add so much caffeine? Now, now here's what's interesting is they it may be coincidence but i found very interesting is if you put caffeine on your tongue it specifically dulls your sweet taste receptors if you put caffeine so in other words if you put caffeine or you drank coffee you'd need more sugar to taste it right so the reason they have caffeine in these drinks is because they can add more sugar so what there are plenty of experiments done where you remove the caffeine in uh, such fizzy drinks and you give it to the same person to drink and the person can't drink it anymore. They say, oh my God, it's too sweet. So you think, why do we need so much sugar? But here's what's interesting. At that threshold is where these sugars directly attach themselves to the opiate receptors. So you're actually hooked on it. So, you know, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but actually it is. Uh, there is a psychological, physiological basis for it. So at that level, you're actually hooked on the sugar and you can't get off. But if you didn't have the caffeine, you probably couldn't add so much sugar that you would get hooked on it. So I actually looked at this to see how much time would it take you to come off coffee. And if somebody was addicted to coffee, you can actually come off cold turkey seven to 12 days and after that you wouldn't crave it. But if you're addicted to sugar, which means if you are drinking a caffeinated fizzy drink, it's like an opiate. It would take you like two months and you'd be depressed, you'd be craving it, you'd get the shakes, you'd be feeling uneasy that you'd want it again. So so really, so these type of things are normal. So if you go back to our origins and being more natural, I think anything which is more processed, full of chemicals, cannot be fundamentally good for you. It's okay as an right. odd treat if you really wanted it and you craved it, you know. 
have it once a month or something. But if you're going to have it every day, it's impossible to have good health when you're creating a bad environment. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to to kind of position that, that we have an external environment that we have we can't control everything there. Too much because politicians are responsible yeah. for a lot of stuff and we yeah. may be in different parts of the world and you know, it may be pollution, things like that. That's right. Right. But, but you taking, can control the internal one. And that's important. That's right. So taking that personal responsibility, like you said, to control what you're putting into your personal environment can help obviously keep you healthy and maybe keep you out of an over-medicalized healthcare system. Oh my gosh, so much great information. Um, I feel like I could talk for another hour, but um, maybe we'll have you back on again to talk about a lot more of, of this because I just find it fascinating. One more question that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast, and that is, knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what, would you, what advice would you give to yourself fresh out of medical school? Fresh out of medical school, I think... I would say it's more or less the same as what I say in any career is, you know, make your work your fun and your fun your work. And I think really because too often what I've found where quality or innovation becomes lacking is when people start clocking in and clocking out, which is very easy in medicine because, as you know, in procedural medicine, you're doing the same thing over and over again. You're not going to be an innovator. You're not going to be excellent if you just think this is a job. I'm just going to clock in and clock out. But majority of people do it, and that's really because um, they don't enjoy that particular thing, and they're in there, and then they think, oh, my God, but this is the only way I know how to make a living. So so I really think the most important thing, what I say to people, is don't worry about other people telling you, you know, this is where the jobs are, this is where you're going to go. I think, you know, do something that you really enjoy. You know, if you enjoy movement and do something which helps you move, if you enjoy, you know, depending on if it fits in with your lifestyle. You know, I think it's the same with, um, you know, like in physical therapy, like yourself. You know, I think I said people, you know, there's so many areas you can work with. You know, you can work with people in coaching them to better posture, stuff like that, executive performance. So you may be really outdoorsy person, then you're better off working with some sports teams or, you know, adventurers, things like that. So I think I think the most important thing is to have fun. Yeah, and I think that's great advice. And thank you for that. I think that's the first time I've heard that phrase. So I love it. Um, make uh, make your fun your work and your work fun. I think that's great advice. Yes, right. Now, yeah. where can people get in touch with you, get the book, learn more about this genomic testing and all that fun stuff? It's very easy. It's just um, sharadpaul.com. It's just S-H-A-R-A-D-Paul.com. Uh, or you can just do geneticsofhealth.com and there's information about me. They can order the book. They're all the various Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the sort of mm-hmm. stuff. You should be able to get it in bookstores in America because it's a Simon & Schuster book. Um, you can also order the gene test there. You can watch the other, you know, the TED oh, yeah, Talk. Oh, yeah, the TED Talk, and yeah. Stuff. yeah. And, and I really think, um, you know, and people can also, there are things to get in touch and, you know, the other perfect. addresses are all there, yeah, social yeah, media perfect. stuff. And I'll have all of that will be under the show notes for this uh, episode at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. We'll link to the TED Talk, which you really should watch because it's pretty cool. And all the information about the book and Dr. Paul and all the good work he's doing. So thanks so much for coming on. And I know that I am going to go out and start buying more citrus fruit ASAP. 
And Abs- eating more fish, and, and eating because more especially fish, if you're on vitamin D, yes. you need to optimize your omega three as well. Yeah. Oh, I take an omega three. I just yes. I take an omega three. <laughs> I just got it the other day um, after I went to hear another talk last week about the importance of that. But Go here's ahead. one thing I was going to tell you: is when you're taking fish oils, if you take it in its natural form, like straight from fish, like we've talked about salmon and cod, for example, then you also get the brain benefits as much as the cardiovascular benefits. But if you take it in a pill form, you get the cardiovascular benefits, but it doesn't go through the blood-brain barrier as much, so you don't get the full brain benefits oh, of the I DHA. Oh, I both. Oh, yes, get, right. You don't get the full you benefits of the be, DHA? That's it. Yes, right. Ah, it doesn't okay. go. Through. So when it's processed, you lose a bit of it. So even when they say it, what you find is you, you do get the cardiovascular benefits. So if you really want the whole thing, then you have to be natural and eat more salmon and cod. And, Got it. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Is that like once a week I eat salmon and cod or do I have to do yeah, that more yeah, than once a week? Yeah, if you, if you can do, you know, if you're having a big um, steak salmon, I mean, ideally if you could do that kind of fish, say twice a week, okay. it would be good, yeah. Perfect. Thank you for the prescription. I That's appreciate right. it. Pleasure. And and thank you for coming on. I appreciate everything that we talked about today. And come back anytime because we could talk about this stuff all day. So thanks so much. Right. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Anytime. And everybody, thanks so much for listening. I'm sure you got a lot out of this, as did I. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.